I can remember when I first learned that my son was using and he's died in front of me a couple of times. The first time I didn't have such a good response from the hospital staff and I was lost. I got, you need to get your son some help, but I didn't get the resources. There's a lack of critical thought to it to sit and really process through why a person may have an addiction problem or a substance use disorder. It's more complicated than just your parent is bad. We need to really stop any kind of notion that somehow there's something or someone to blame. It's a super complex condition that has multiple inputs in the development of this disease. Welcome to episode 13 of Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we will be discussing the myth that kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. We'll discuss risk factors and protective factors for substance use disorders. We'll talk about preventative actions that parents can take to lower the likelihood that their child will experience a substance use disorder. We'll hear some personal stories from the perspective of parents and children, and we'll talk about supportive actions for parents and families and some of the specific resources right here in Utah. Before we jump into the conversation, let's first have our guests introduce themselves. Let's start with Carlos, and then we'll go to Julie, Dr. Khan, and then Lisa. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Carlos Rivera, and uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery, which means I haven't used alcohol or drugs for 16 years this year. I am also an enrolled tribal member with the Pomo Band of Indians from Northern California. I also am a CEO of a Native American nonprofit. The headquarters is here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But we work with tribes all over the country. There's about 576 federally recognized tribes and probably about 100 more of state recognized tribes. So uh, our organization works closely with these tribes and also into Canada and Alaska. Aside from that, I'm also the behavioral health officer for um, IHS clinic in Santa Barbara, California. Thanks, Carlos, for being here. Carlos has been with us before. Okay, Julie. Julie, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm in uh, long-term recovery. I am a uh, recovery coach for two counties in Wisconsin, work with the drug court here. And also I facilitate support groups for SMART Recovery, which stands for self-management and recovery training. Also I'm a panel member of PERSA. Also with my personal history of addiction, I have a son who is also in active addiction. So kind of got that both sides of the fence. Thanks, Julie. Dr. Khan, do you want to go next? Hi, Tim. Thank you for having me. I'm Amy Khan. I serve as the Executive Medical Director for Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield in Utah. And I'm actually an internal medicine physician by training. I actually started my career in primary care, but very quickly realized that more than half of my patients were struggling with substance use issues and developed uh, my specialty in the field of addiction medicine. I had the privilege of serving members and their family for about 10 years in my clinical practice in the Northern California area. I had a stint at the CDC and really focused on population health, disease control and prevention. And in my role now, and as it's been for the last decade or so, I really feel that my role is to assure that people have access to good care, to contemporary treatment for their chronic disease. And in support of our members and our clients, I, I'm able to do that through our health plan. Thanks for being here. I love that you mentioned substance use disorders as chronic illnesses, such an important part of this conversation. Okay, Lisa, do you want to go next? 
Sure. Hi, uh, Tim. So my name is Lisa Schenker. I am an extension assistant professor at Utah State University. I've just started my position here in February. And prior to that, I actually worked at a prevention research institute in, at Iowa State University, where I worked for 15 years doing community-based prevention work. So my focus is really on the role of the family in preventing substance misuse among youth. And so what I've had the opportunity to do is develop programs that are specifically addressing risk and protective factors, as uh, we'll be talking about in this conversation. And, you know, just learning how important those are at the multiple levels that they occur. In my role in Extension, you know, we're looking at the ways that we can address risk and protective factors through our various programming efforts and uh, collaborating with the prevention providers in our counties. Thanks, Lisa. We are really happy to have you here as well. Okay, so again, the myth that we're debunking today is kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. Truthfully, it's a little hard for me to say that out loud, uh, just because I fundamentally do not believe that's true. But unfortunately, it's, it's out there and the stigma is real. I want to first hear one or two sentences from each of you about what you think when you hear this myth. A couple thoughts come to mind uh, immediately when I hear this myth. You know, when we have a society um, that doesn't understand addiction, doesn't understand substance use disorders. I think it's the, the natural need to explain or to respond and have an answer for something that you don't understand. And, and it's easy to simply say that, that, well, it's the parents' fault. They would have done this right. They wouldn't have a, an addiction problem. When I hear that, there's a lack of critical thought to it. To sit and, and really process through, it's more complicated than <laughs> than just, you know, your parent is bad or they made mistakes. Thank you so much, Carlos, because when I hear that, I get really uncomfortable. And I think it's because in that statement, it reflects a lot of blame. It reflects a lot of black and white thinking. These are all the things that keep people using, right? And within that, there's you know, if there's blame, there's also guilt and there's also shame. And so I really like to reframe that and say, wow, I might have diabetes. I have a family history. Did that mean my parent caused that? You know, I think we need to really stop and kind of halt any kind of, kind of notion that somehow there's something or someone to blame. It's a super complex condition that has multiple inputs in the development of this disease. And I think that when I hear that, particularly for parents, who are struggling with a child who has addiction, it really can keep that family in agony. No matter what side of that coin you're on, it's the same unit. Thanks, Dr. Khan. So Julie, what do you think when you hear this myth? I don't really think that anybody is bad. <laughs> I think that there's a, a lot of empathy, I think, to be learned about past experiences and how we manage life and how we cope with different things in lives. And sometimes we don't always have that upbringing to teach us the correct ways, but that doesn't mean that, that we can never learn. It sounds like it's just a complicated issue and it's, we just can't put a black and white label on it. I keep hearing from all of you too, kind of like, how can you define who's a bad parent? What makes someone bad and what makes someone good? Lisa, what do you think when you hear this myth? Yeah, so the thing that comes to my mind is this concept of 
parents who have tried so hard and gone above and beyond, you know, what they thought was humanly possible to try to get their children the help that they need, the support that they need. And I mean, hearing stories of parents that are like, I would have literally sold my house to pay for my child's treatment. I think so many parents are doing the best they can and doing whatever they can to help their kids deal with it. And so to say that they're bad, I think is just, just really, really wrong. We need to get over that. I totally agree. Thanks, Lisa. So Julie, as a parent of somebody who's in active addiction, who has a substance use disorder, how does that make you feel when somebody says that? I used to, you know, become more upset, but I think in my own recovery journey, I think we, you learn to calm down a lot and I listen more than I speak today. So, you know, what really helps me is I just try to understand that person that's saying that what, what's their background, how much do they know about addiction? Because if they don't know a whole lot, well then, okay, say what you need to say or think what you need to think. And then, you know, I do the best I can to explain, you know, we're human We don't deserve to be treated any less than that, but it's hard. I don't know that it'll ever go away, but um, I think that every little effort counts. I mean, emergency rooms, I think, are a big one um, that if we can get people like peer specialists in there to help explain this to the family, you know, someone, a family peer specialist, somebody that can say, hey, look, I've been here. You're not alone. Because I can remember when I first learned that my son was using, he's died in front of me a couple of times. It's horrifying, you know, and I tell you the first time I didn't have such a good response from the hospital staff. You get the bad looks like, look at your child as if I was responsible had he died. But these are the faces that I remember now. These are the comments. And I was lost. I didn't get any resources. I didn't get, oh, here's a pamphlet. You might want to get some family help or I didn't get anything. I got, you need to get your son some help, but I didn't get the resources. So that's hard to swallow as a parent. Well, those are some rough waters to navigate without resources. Okay, we need to take a quick break, but after the break, we'll talk about some of the risk factors and the protective factors for substance use disorders. We'll also talk about some of the preventative actions that parents can take to lower the likelihood that their children will develop a substance use disorder. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members, and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Rural Opioid Technical Assistance Program, offering programs to address barriers of access to rural communities related to opioid use disorder. And Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield of Utah works to transform healthcare from the inside out. We reduce confusion, waste, and red tape for members as we help them navigate the healthcare system. The information on the show is so important, so relevant, and definitely information that more people need to hear. So please take a minute to rate and review the show. There's something about the algorithm. The more reviews, the more debunked shows up in people's feeds. So rate and review. Thanks. So welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. Right now we're going to talk about some of the risk factors and protective factors for addiction. And we'll talk about some of the preventative actions that parents can take to lower the likelihood of their child developing a substance use disorder. So Dr. Khan, we talk a lot about substance use disorders on this show, but can you give our listeners a brief definition of addiction just so that it's fresh in all of our minds? Yes, certainly. I think it really is helpful 
to clarify what the disease of addiction is. It is first and foremost, a treatable chronic medical condition. We have a lot of chronic conditions that are treatable and like them, there's also steps that can be taken to prevent the onset of addiction or substance use disorder. The important thing to understand about addiction it is not a moral failing, is not a choice. It's about got as much influence in many people once it's established, I should say, as someone wishing that their eye color was different. This is a progressive, often can be fatal illness if not treated, and is really characterized by this complex interaction of brain circuitry involving neurochemicals and neural pathways, as well as family history or genetics that puts a person at higher risk, coupled with environmental factors, the surroundings in which a person has grown up in or is living in, and lastly, greatly influenced by adverse events by life events that can be incredibly impactful in establishing, again, this multifactorial disease process that is situated typically around substance use, could be behaviors as well, that results in compulsion around that use and consequences related to use or those behaviors. Thank you so much. For a more in-depth look at addiction as a chronic illness and other things, we've talked about those on previous episodes. So if you go to episode one, episode two, episode four, episode five, episode seven, all of these episodes talk about this subject because it's so complex. I mean, it's so important to understand that addiction, like Dr. Khan said, is preventable, it's treatable, it's a chronic illness. Thus, it needs to be treated like a chronic illness. So Dr. Khan, talk to us a bit about what risk factors for substance use disorders actually means, and then can you highlight some of those specific risk factors? I think first and foremost, I mentioned family history, this notion that we have often genetic predisposition, which may involve circuitry or connections or a type of chemistry that we didn't choose, we inherited. And I've often said for people in recovery, you know, it's a choose your parents well sort of thing, right? Like we all did. (laughs) And so we do have that notion of we're born to a certain extent with some of this risk. Another risk factor would be the age of first use. Our brains are not fully developed until our mid-20s. And one part of that brain has to do with our frontal cortex, which has to do with judgment and whether or not we have impulsive behavior and our ability to execute executive function. So as you can imagine, if your use of substances started as a teen or adolescent, that brain hasn't been fully developed and the impact of a substance that essentially hijacks your normal brain chemistry can actually cause some damage to the natural maturation process. So age at first use is important. People who start at a younger age are more likely to develop an addiction problem later as they get older. The other pieces around compulsion and around uh, craving, tolerance. There are some individuals who have tolerance to the physiologic effects, but they're still getting some reward and reinforcement. And that often will actually encourage 
continued use. They don't feel sick. They didn't throw up if they drank. They didn't pa pass out. So this notion of craving or tolerance comes into play because everyone responds differently. And then the last thing that I want to mention is the surrounding or the environment. If we are in an environment in which substance use is permitted, encouraged is part of the everyday activity, it's truly a normalization of use and often an access issue. And even in situations where a person perhaps isn't growing up with alcohol use, maybe there's a medicine chest filled with bottles of pills, or maybe it's a cultural sort of uh, experience that whenever we do get together, we all drink or we all use or what have you. Thank you. Lisa, do you have uh, further comments on that? When we talk about risk factors, a lot of times, you know, people think that, well, I mean, I know we're going to talk about protective factors, but a lot of times people think they're sort of like the opposite of the other. So if you kind of flip it around, it's like, well, if a risk factor is that you have poor impulse control or executive functioning, then the, the protective factor is that you have strong impulse control and executive functioning. And so that's one way to, to look at it. I guess the other thing I want to talk about risk factors is that it's cumulative. And there's so much resilience, though, that exists when we look at, well, the, the ACEs, you know, the adverse childhood events and things like that. And we say, well, you know, if you have so many of these things that have happened in your life, then it, it means you're this much more likely to experience a, a substance use disorder later. You know, it, it doesn't happen to everyone, for everyone. And so there's something, there's, there's this very complex interplay between these risk and protective factors that uh, really, and there's, there's no, no way to really predict it. I mean, all we can do is kind of do the best we can and, and try to put in as many protective factors as we can to offset the, the risk factors that exist. Thank you so much. Carlos, are there risk factors unique to Native American youth? Yeah, I want to thank uh, everyone for all the comments and, and feedback. It's, you know, helping to also generate those thoughts and further comments. And so, you know, when, when I take a look at Native American community, it's always very important to include the historical context. In some ways, it'll always be with us as we continue to heal. When I take a look at the historical context and what the historical trauma and the boarding schools, how that all played a huge part in our risk factors today. We have a large population of Native communities that are living in rural areas, such as you know where I'm at now. But then through census, recent census, we have a larger population that lives in the urban cities. And so when I take a look at both groups of Native communities, both groups have their own unique risk factors, but ultimately comes down to this unresolved grief, this unresolved trauma that has been passed down from the past generation. Not only are we dealing with the current issues that are in front of us, but if our family, if my ancestors did not heal from their trauma two generations ago, then I'm also carrying that with me uh, on top of what I'm experiencing today. So in the urban areas, there's a lot of resources that are available to Native people that they can access and also to become self-sustainable, where in rural areas, such as our reservations here in the Dakotas or maybe even Montana, Wisconsin, a lot of the communities have become dependent on the uh, subsidies that are available by the state or by uh, Indian Health Services. So then it almost becomes a crutch. So, you know, looking at those risk factors, they're there from the time we're born. It's in the family, it's in our community, 
and it's in the DNA in some ways because of the, the past traumas. And so, you know, I just think that it's very important to always keep in mind that when we're taking a look at specifically to Native American communities and healing from substance use disorders, that we cannot leave out the past risk factors as well. As Carlos talked about and Lisa, I mean, you both brought up adverse childhood experiences. We talk more in depth about adverse childhood experiences as they relate to Native American populations, specifically in episode six and episode 10. But I just want to remind the listeners, Native American boarding schools lasted in the U.S. until 1973 and in Canada until 1996. And Native Americans were not legally allowed to practice religious ceremonies until 1978 in the U.S., So, I mean, these are like really heavy subjects that cause a lot of trauma and have the potential for extreme adverse childhood experiences, which set people up in a unique way for substance use disorders, unfortunately. So thanks for talking about that, Carlos. So Lisa, can you tell us what protective factors for substance use disorders mean? And then can you highlight some of those specific protective factors? Yeah, so when we talk about protective factors, we're really talking about the things that are going to make it, and when I say things, it's it's usually characteristics, features, etc., that make it less likely that a person will develop a substance use disorder or reduce a risk factor's impact on that person and their likelihood of, of developing it. So protective factors can occur at many different levels. We like to think of this in sort of the social ecological model where we have sort of an individual level, a peer, a family network, you know, granted to the community, a broader society level. So we have protective factors at all of these different levels. So at the individual level for youth, it is things like having good impulse control, the genetics that they have that make them less susceptible, having a strong vision for themselves in the future. So that positive future orientation is something that we know is a protective factor, having high self-esteem when they feel good about themselves. So those are some of the things at the individual level that are just sort of the characteristics. Some of them are sort of inborn that that are not changeable and others really can be changed over time. And when we look at things like the, the peer level or the friend level, we're talking about things like having friends that are not experimenting with drugs and alcohol. The norms, for example, in a school may be such that that is not something that is really accepted by majority of friends. So they view that, you know, if kids are doing that, that is not the cool thing to do. And then when we get to the family level, of course, this is kind of where my passion comes in. And at the family level, it's it's a lot about the connection with the parents, the having good communication, having that support, but also having limits set, getting the monitoring that they need because their brains are not able to help them make the good decisions or understand consequences just yet. And so they really do need that guidance from their parents to help them to kind of figure that out and navigate that, making the good choices. And so that's why parents really do need to help them, give them reasons for, you know, not just you can't do this or you shouldn't do this, but the reasons why. So that authoritative parenting is something that research has shown is really critical and and serving as a protective factor. One of the other really big things is that teens, especially in adolescence, they have this huge need for belonging and acceptance. And if they're not able to get that need met in a positive way, that's where we see them, you know, kind of turning to alternative either friend groups or, you know, getting into trouble and delinquency and and substance use experimentation. And so one of the things that we look at is how do we get kids involved in positive activities, in pro-social activities? They get things that they can feel good about. They might, you know, get hobbies. They get things that they can get recognition for and have that sense of belonging and acceptance. So that's really important. 
I wanted to just piggyback on a couple of things, Lisa, that you've mentioned and expand on this notion of protective factors and focus a bit on building resiliency. We know that there are definitely things that we can encourage among our youth, among our children to help protect them. And you've mentioned this notion of finding a passion or a vocation or something that you can master or excel in and how important that is for people to generate a sense that they can do something and develop a skill or an interest that derives a sense of satisfaction and pleasure. I think that's very important, particularly as our youth go through different developmental stages. And they might be really interested in something perhaps in the elementary school, but then find something different when they're in junior high or high school. But this notion of finding your passion and developing skills to mastery is important. In addition, this notion of a mentor Adults other than parents in one's life who are positive influences, persons who can provide a level of direction and support, I think are incredibly important, particularly in settings where perhaps mom or dad aren't there or folks don't have a stable home, that there are individuals in that youth's life who represent a supportive adult. You know, I'm a big one on environment and self-like, self-identity, and it all ties together. Of course, growing up in a small town and now working with so many clients in, in our drug court program that also have had histories, through traumatic histories. But what I notice is pretty evident, and I'm not at all saying that the parenting is bad, but it's all they've ever known. So when an environment, after generation after generation, is that of we drink every night, and that's just what we do after a long, hard day of work, we live in a lot of um, areas where there's lots of farming going on. So after you work in the field, do you come home and you drink a beer? And that's just the way it is. And you do that every single night. And on the weekend, it gets even better because you're celebrating the weekend. But then on Sunday, you go to church and you just don't breathe a peep about your family. You don't say anything. So there's this dysfunction that repeats itself generation after generation. So this is their normal. This is all they've ever known. And when things come up where they're having to cope, you know, how do they do that? Well, they do that probably very dysfunctionally because this is what they've known. This is all they've ever known. And not only is it in the family, when I, when I say environment, I mean community environment. That's the dysfunction. And to not know, it trickles back. And, you know, at some point that has to break. At some point, somebody has to say, this isn't normal. I don't know what normal is because at this point, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I like. All I know is this isn't it. And I got to trust resources that tell me this is healthy over here. And speaking of my own journey, my own recovery journey, that's exactly what I did. There come a point in my life where I had to say, okay, this is not working. I've tried everything under the sun and I ended up leaving my home. I, you know, I had had two vehicles. I had a beautiful home. I had it made and I went from that to being homeless because I knew I needed a change. And that change was going to be so impactful because I've never seen the life that I was about to live. I've never seen it. I've never felt it. But I was just trusting that I hope you guys are all right. And, and I'm glad I did because today I've got the best recovery community. It's amazing. And I want so much for so many people to feel that exact, just that blessing. Oh, my gosh. 
Thank you. Thanks for being vulnerable and sharing those thoughts. So Carlos, are there specific protective factors unique to Native American youth? Yes. One thing that I keep in mind when I'm working with families or, or youth, Native American communities, I go back to a time when our ancestors, they were like masters at what they did. They were PhD, except they didn't go to school to get their PhD or their master's degree. They received it from Mother Earth in a way. And so uh, as we lived in harmony at one time at being master parents and providers and healers, that all changed with the colonization, with all the trauma. And so then I go into where we're at today and I look at some of the approaches we use, such as Maslow's hierarchy of needs or even Eric Erickson's stages of development. If you don't know the story on that, both of those researchers spent some time with, you know, Native American elders and spent time, you know, on the reservation with these elders from the Midwest all the way to the West Coast and then all the way up into Alberta, Canada, and learned some invaluable information from, from these elders, but then went back to their university and you know published their papers. So then we call it Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs or Eric Erickson's Stages of Development. A lot of that information came from those elders and, and those teachers. And one thing that was left out, and this is something um, very specific to working with the indigenous community, is there's not only one triangle of uh, you know, this hierarchy, but there's actually four. And so if you take the triangle of the hierarchy of needs and you flip it upside down, and the first need that we look at that needs to be met is not your basic needs, but it's spirituality. The spirituality is missing from a lot of the approaches. What we try to do now is even working with our young people, we start there first in indigenous community. You know, that sense of belonging is very, very valuable. You know, thank Lisa and, and Amy for sharing that. For me, I, I like to highlight the spirituality. I wanted to highlight that we had the answers at one time and that they're still there. We just got to look within to find them. Thanks, Carlos. So we need to take a quick break, but after the break, we'll hear more of Julie's story. And we'll also talk about supportive actions um, for parents and families and some specific resources uh, right here in Utah. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and USU's Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, committed to educating and serving students and members of both local and extended communities in the fields of kinesiology and health science. Information at khs.usu.edu. And the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative of Utah State University, an effort to address opioid use among rural Utahns in the hopes of eliminating myths and promoting health. Information at khs.usu.edu.outreach. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. Earlier in the show, we talked about risk factors and protective factors for substance use disorders, and we talked about some preventative measures that parents can take. So now we're going to hear from Julie. So Julie, can you tell us about your story and a little bit more about why you relate to this topic? So I relate to this topic in, in many different ways. My son is an active addiction. When I found out he was an addict, there was other things that went along with me just discovering he was high. He was stealing from people at school. When I found out, there was some legal consequences that we were looking at. So now, you know, the rumors start. And before long, it was the whole family that was thieves. And, and of course, I'm 
open about my history with addiction. So people knew that about myself as well. But I was at the time I was president of our, our, our church. And I remember being very angry one morning because of all these things that were happening. And my son was just sent to a mental health institution. And I was just angry. And it was the Sunday after we had a bachelorette for our seniors. And my son was to be graduating, although he was going to face some legal consequences. So anyway, the Sunday before this, this outburst that I'm about to tell you about, I had overheard a lady tell someone else that, well, jail is his future when, you know, and it was just, it really hurt because, you know, here I am, I watched so many of these children grow up and I was so happy for them and, you know, wish them the best in, in success. But at the same time, I was very mad at God. I was like, you know, why my son? You know, why, why, why? So that next Sunday, I walked into church. I had to lead the uh, worship that Sunday. And I said, I want, before I get started, I want to tell you all some things that are going on in my life. And I said, I just said it. I said, my, my son's an addict. I'm a recovering addict and alcoholic myself. My husband has bipolar and schizophrenic. My, I've got a long history of mental illness in my family and I really don't care right now. <laughs> and, and so, but what I thought I was going to get was rejection. But after that, that speech, I ended up getting a lot of thank you for sharing. I want you to know that my husband is an alcoholic, or I want you to know that I too have this history. And it was probably the best thing I ever did. Now, did I get people that judged me from there on out? Absolutely. However, those people that didn't judge me, those people that didn't, you know, hang on to those beliefs were the ones that really made the difference. Sometimes when I'm hearing these stories, like what you're telling me, Julie, I can't help but just sit and sort of feel the gravity of those situations and how difficult it must have been and still is. I mean, what is that like now? Today, um, he's in jail. And I'm, I'm happy to say that he's in jail. And I know that sounds sad, but addiction gets to a scary place. And when you know there's no sign of recovery, they're not even in a contemplation area, they're still sitting in the pre-contemplation. Then as a parent, me being a recovery coach or a facilitator, that's all shoved aside because as a parent, I'm there to protect my child and keep him alive. And the way I see it is if he is incarcerated and this is what his addiction has led him to today, then while he's incarcerated, he's safe from himself. His brain's not being affected by chemicals that he's getting out on the street. You know, and you start to look at the little changes that occur when he calls. For instance, this time when he called me and he said, Mom, I'm in jail. He said, I just can't do this anymore, Mom. I, I cannot do this. I don't want to do this. And I don't know how to get out of it. And that's huge. You know, there was one other time where he had that desperation in his voice. So it's those little things that you look at. Now, the next time he called, he was really in good spirit. He sounded great. And he's like, well, Mom, I got to go. I got a, I got a card game that the guys are waiting for me. When I ended that phone call, I almost was a little angry. I'm like, you act like this is camp. But then again... After reflecting on that, you know, he's healthy. He's probably less stressed because, again, he's safe from himself. You get to a point in your addiction where you can't trust anybody else. You don't trust yourself. You're scared out of your mind. But today, there's still that fear there that I'm going to get that call that he's not going to be with me anymore. So that I, I keep very real in my life. 
and going forward, my son and I, we don't argue. We have great conversations. Our conversations are always, I love you. He tells me about his drug use. He'll tell me what he's used. He's very honest with me because the way I see it is, is I can get mad and I can keep regurgitating the same lecture I've regurgitated for, to him years in a row, but he knows he's educated. He's been in many, many recovery homes, treatment facilities, at least five. So he knows the program. He knows there's resources out there. And so for me to regurgitate that every time that I talk to him or yell at him or be angry, that's something that I have to keep in mind if I don't see him tomorrow. I tend to err on the side of I don't do anything that I'm not going to be able to live with. I don't say anything to him that I'm not going to be able to live with should I ever get that call. Julia, you're really amazing. It sounds like you are being so open and willing to listen to things that maybe you don't want to hear about. That still provides that open conversation and I'm sure makes it so that your son feels like he can come to you and talk to you about anything that he needs. But also you you set up boundaries to make sure that you can keep your space as all of us need boundaries in relationships. I think that's really amazing that you've done those things. Thank you. Earlier, Julie talked to us in the beginning of the show about a moment when you said that you were in the ER and they said you needed to help your son, but you didn't have any resources. I know that there are tons of parents out there that are in the same situation. So I want to talk now about specific resources that we have for families in the U.S., but specifically in Utah, because this podcast is in Utah. So Dr. Khan, what can parents do if their child is experiencing a substance use disorder? And what are some of the specific harm reduction practices that parents can take as well? I appreciate you sharing. Really appreciate that, Julie. First of all, you're not alone. I think that's number one. Parents need to understand that they are not alone. And it's a sign of health to ask for help. I think there's a lot of shame and guilt that rides along with this. And so that can be an immense hurdle for many. But recognizing that folks need to reach out, there is a lot of resources available. Some of them are virtual. Some of them are online. Some of them are in person. And I do want to just highlight a group kind of support uh, that can be very helpful in maybe giving a parent the language that is needed to start thinking about and talking about this issue, coming to terms with the fact that a son or daughter, loved one has addiction is a difficult process for many people to understand. And it may be clouded up by their own family of origin history, and they have some judgment around that. And so when this is happening for your own child, again, recognizing get help, talk about it, talk to others who've been through it, and then start getting the support that you need as a parent to be able to then help your son or daughter. But also being firm, understand your limits. You may not want to be having your child who's not in recovery staying with you. The notion of coming home to a child who's overdose may be too much to bear. Or you may not want to be the person who, when your child asks for that last 50 bucks of something that they needed, to realize that was the money that they used and then subsequently overdose. So be firm about what limits you may want to set because those are going to be ones that you'll be dealing with 
and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, it does, but I just want to kind of give parents the confidence and let individuals know that there is a lot of support available for you on that journey to ultimately help your child. So I think some of the community support that's available for parents would include things like Naranon family groups or Al-Anon family groups. I say sample them all, find the your people, find the ones that work best for you. USARA, the Utah Support Advocates of for Recovery Awareness, have listed on their website numerous resources that individuals can seek to get that support. And then um, certainly within your health plan, Regents has a number of behavioral health supports for family. If you're employed, you might have access to an employee assistance program. Hazleton Betty Ford offers a number of uh, free resources, online apps, telephonic kind of supports that parents can take advantage of. Thanks, Dr. Khan. Lisa, do you have any programs that you wanted to highlight that you're working on here in Utah? I think that what I'm most connected to are parenting programs that are not specifically for parents dealing with children in active addiction. So it really starting with the risk and protective factors with children who are probably around the preteen age is really when we look at trying to get in there with parenting education around that transition between elementary and middle school or junior high. So when they start having more independence and they're looking for that autonomy, I guess what I would encourage is for, um, you know, parents that are just looking for what can I do? You know, I don't think my child is having an issue right now, but it's kind of taking preventative action. And some of that is do parenting classes, do a, do a family skill building program that helps facilitate good, strong communication and helps you connect in a different way than maybe you're able to on your own. And those programs are out there around the state. There's a connection of prevention providers that get money from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They get money that goes to the state of Utah, and then it's distributed out to counties across the state. And so there are prevention program providers around the state. And so I would just encourage parents to find out, look for those prevention resources that are out there for them and, and take a parenting class. There's great evidence-based programs, the things that are going to, you know, have been shown to make a difference. They're not just people making things up. You know, you're going to have programs that are really going to make a difference for you and your child. And so I would just encourage, there's that side of it as well. And then there's a whole other set of resources, obviously, for families and parents and youth who are dealing with an active addiction situation. Thank you. One program that I wanted to point out too is the Drug Policy Alliance has a curriculum for high schoolers called Safety First, and they also have a Safety First uh, resource for parents as well. So all of the resources that Dr. Khan and Lisa mentioned, as well as the one I just mentioned, they'll be posted on our social media at Debunked Pod. So you can check all those out. Julie, I really want to ask this question to you. So why is it important to you that we debunk this myth in our communities, the myth that kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. If it's not debunked, then we're really robbing people of the opportunity to get the help that they need when they need it, especially in that time of crisis or when, when you see your child overdose and you want so bad to reach out and you want so bad for somebody to say, here, I can, I can help you, or I'll listen to you, or, or I will help you find resources. If they don't feel like the consequence of reaching out hurts worse than the situation they're in, then it's just never going to get any better. And this is a community. It affects the entire community. 
The Debunk Podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research. Offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us today on Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we debunk the myth that kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. You can find links to the resources mentioned in this episode on our social media platforms at DebunkedPod. Speaking of social media, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at DebunkedPod, or on our website at bit.ly forward slash DebunkedPod. Don't forget to tell all your friends about Debunked and remind them that they can find the show on the podcast app, Spotify, UPR.org, and anywhere else they get their podcasts. Debunked is produced in collaboration with Utah Public Radio. Funding for the show comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, the Utah State University Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield. Our editorial board is Jay Hymas, Adam Baxter, Ashanti Mortz, Savannah Ely, Dr. Sandra Solzer, Dr. Suzanne Prevedel, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, Mindy Vincent, Patrick Rizak, Michelle Chapoose, Dr. Marin Voss, Dr. Amy Kahn, Trisha Glass, Lloyd Arrive, Hilary Deesh, Jennifer Petrus, and Susie Baker. Debunked is produced by Nick Porth, Shalane Smith-Needham, and Friend Weller, with Nick Porth serving as lead producer. Our creative specialist is Autumn Gibbs. Music for today's episode was created by Nick Porth. Our science advisor is Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, and our program directors are Dr. Sandra Solzer and Dr. Suzanne Prevedel. I'm Tim Light, host and editorial board member.